Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. You know, one of the industry sectors that just seems to be more and more in the news, maybe this year more than ever, has been cannabis, weed, we're talking. Um, maybe that's because it's been, you know, a pretty big business in Canada, and we've got more and more U.S. states legalizing uh, cannabis. To get the latest on that and on kind of all things in Canada, we welcome Dave uh, Dan Devio, president and CEO of Canaccord Genuity Group, uh, based in Toronto, Canada. But joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Dan, thanks so much for coming down with us. So talk to us about the state of the cannabis business because we've certainly heard more and more about it as we've gone through the year yeah no it's been it's and first of all thanks for very much for having me and secondly it, it's been it's been a very active segment um you know throughout the last two or three years we've seen an, an incredible time where there was a massive rush to the market by you know probably over a hundred companies that went public raising four to five billion dollars and you know there was exuberance in the market it's a new market no one really knew how big it was going to be and, and a lot of companies raised money you know it's taken a little bit longer for people to realize on their strategic plans part of its access to capital part of its government regulations taking a little bit longer so we've seen some volatility in the market we've seen some people lose money as a result but people made a lot of money there for a while like I can I can remember this market three years ago where you couldn't convince somebody to invest in a cannabis stock and the guys that we took out uh, you know we we ended up having to pass the hat you know around the firm just to fill out deals at the beginning Wait, did you actually ask your employees to buy well, the, into well, the, se the, se the senior people really felt strongly about the industry at the beginning and it wasn't about asking them it was you know they they decided to do it but certainly yeah some of our employees at the beginning invested in it and and did well the ones who invested lately didn't do so well we've seen the big banks come into the market lately um and unfortunately that hasn't worked out as well a little late to the sector and uh some of the broadening of the distribution hasn't worked out well some of those deals haven't performed as well paul i love the idea of passing a hat around the office <laughs> we, to we, say we, like what what are we putting money in for pot yeah, exactly we call that in a business co-investing yeah <laughs> exactly well i will say this we, we it, it's interesting that you say that the big banks have tried to get in lately and it hasn't worked out is that good for you because it, that would have potentially been competition for you uh, yeah, yeah, we have dominant market share. When I mean dominant, I mean we raise the the majority of the money in the market and probably represent most of the M and A trade. So it's clearly competition. You'd think would be bad, but but you know the broadening out of the market would be a good thing. That market would be five times larger. So our market share would go from theoretically hundred to twenty percent. We'd still do very well as an institution because the market would be that much larger. Well, talk to us in the U.S. I know. So Canada is it federally legalized? Is that Correct. Okay. And so, and that's good. Um, and in the U.S., we just have a limited number of states. What's the understanding about a, a possible federal legalization in the United States? Yeah, well, there's, the industry is not, doesn't have the stigma that it used to have, yep. clearly. So there's three pieces of federal legislation working their way through the government. There's the SAFE Act, States Act, and MORE Act, all three of them. And who knows exactly what will get passed and when. The point is, eventually, it's coming. 
eventually we're going to see it. So we don't, I'd like to make either a prediction or give a time frame. I don't like to do both, but eventually we're going to see federal legislation in the industry and that's going to help. From a state level, there's a number of state votes happening every year. This year, there's four states voting on adult legal use, recreational use. So that's going to continue to play out. We're going to continue to see states um, you know, legalize it to, at that level. But until we have federal le legislation, you're not going to see uh, companies be able to list on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, and you're not going to see the big, big mutual funds and big, big money invest in the sector. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I know that Ken Accord focuses a lot on a whole host of different functions within the financial services, whether it's the wealth management business or uh, whether it is facilitating mergers and acquisitions. What are you expecting in 2020 in terms of corporate health and their willingness to complete transactions, given how high valuations are right now? Yeah, well, I think high valuations does 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 a lot of things. I mean, certainly companies are prepared to raise money when their values are high, and companies are prepared to buy and sell each other when their values are high. And there's pretty good access to capital still, both equity capital, but more importantly, credit capital. All those things direct you towards a pretty active market, both from a new issue perspective and an M&A perspective. So we see both markets continue to be active. We're busy in technology. It's a huge area of us. We bought a firm here called Petsky Prunier uh, last year, and our you know the share of our M&A business has gone up substantially. I think we're number three in that mid-market TMT area. And we continue to see that being very active in the U.S. We've got a great healthcare presence, uh, both biotech and healthcare services, and that's been very active for us. So broadly speaking, we continue to be pretty optimistic. Tony Dwyer, our main market strategist, continues to see a very strong market over the next year. So we, we you know, we're pretty bullish on that industry. Your stock's down 13% year to date. What's what's the story? What's uh, going on? Uh, not a, more 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 sellers than buyers. Yep. No. Um, <laughs> and that's a wrap. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean it's it's unfortunate that our stock is down because our earnings has been our earnings have been incredibly strong. We've been increasingly profitable every year. Last year we did about 80 cents a share in earnings. This year to date we've done 41 cents a share in earnings. You know we trade at six to seven times earnings. And given that most of our earnings come from our wealth business, I think people see us as a relative volatile capital markets type stock but but the truth is 70% of our earnings last quarter came from our wealth business and that's been a growing area of profitability we've been able to attract a remarkable number of new advisory teams in our Canadian wealth business and in our UK wealth business which is 45 billion Canadian dollars it's a big business we've we've bought a lot of firms and integrated them in and our margins keep on going up our profitability goes up we've also been buying back our stock because we see it's relatively cheap we bought 40 million dollars Canadian a stock last year Year, and we're going to continue that activity. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Dan Davio, he is President and Chief Executive Officer of Canaccord Genuity Group uh, Corporation uh, with $44 billion of assets under management based in Toronto, Canada. But he joins us here in our interactive broker studios in New York City, where it is just about the same type of weather as they normally see in Canada, which is absolutely freezing. Uh, but really interesting to talk about uh, the outlook for cannabis, given how much uh, optimism there's been around that sector, although of late it's been rather beaten up.
Let's talk about emerging markets. This is another consensus call heading into 2020 is that emerging markets will outperform on the heels in part of a weaker dollar. Joining us now to talk about this, Vincent Deluard. He is a global macro strategist at INTL FC Stone uh, based in San Francisco. Vincent, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, people saying that there are opportunities here. You're going a step further and calling currencies in developing markets dirt cheap. Please explain. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, it's been going on for a while, but uh, last year really added uh, to the case, uh, especially if you look at Latin American currencies where, you know, we had declines of like 20, 30 percent in, in some of the safest currencies, like the Chilean peso. Um, if you're going to look at Asia, it, it strikes me as um, just insane that basically the Korean won or the Thai bath are basically where they were in 2000, just after the East Asian crisis, uh, the internet bubble in the U.S. And if you look how far these countries have come since that time, it seems odd that on a real effective basis, their currencies have not appreciated in the past 20 years. So, Vincent, in your most recent research note, you do a mea culpa here. You had a 2019 call of overweight EM, and that's uh, not been the right cause. The EM has once again trailed kind of the S&P and broader markets. Why do you think emerging markets are, in fact, not getting rewarded, maybe just from a valuation perspective, if nothing else? Right. Um, well, I think last year, it really came down to uh, two macro developments that the market had not anticipated. One was the escalation of the trade wars in, in the summer. I mean, if you look at the beginning of the year, it looked like the EM trade was going to work. And then as soon as we had uh, the new round of, of summer tariffs, then everything kind of broke down. And then the second um, element was the uh, wave of protests that we saw from, you know, Santiago to Beirut to Baghdad to Cairo. Um, so that's why we took down the, uh, the EM trade down. Um, as far as the valuation gap, I mean, it's been there for close to 10 years now, but it's, it's getting to ridiculous proportions. I mean, one... One way to look at it that, that I like is to compare the growth, the valuation of the NASDAQ versus emerging markets because I feel, you know, we have two big growth narratives for the past 20 years. It's been either, you know, internet uh, software is going to eat the world or the rising emerging market middle class. And right now that gap is about 40% bigger than it was at the height of the internet bubble. So I know people have said before, but at some point there will be some mean reversion in that ratio. How much of this hinges entirely on the dollar? And, and I say this because people are expecting the dollar to weaken a, a bit next year. The dollar has been the hardest call to get right. Uh, and it really has driven a lot of what we've seen in developing markets, no? Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is indeed the, um, the crucial question when it comes to EM. I mean, the emerging market trade is a synthetic short dollar trade. Uh, and the reason is, I mean, part of it for commodity exporters, obviously, you have a very clear relation. You know, the, the weaker the dollar, the more uh, the, the more they get. Uh, but also, uh, really, what, what makes makes it special this cycle is the amount of dollar debt that these emerging markets have contracted, uh, 3.6 trillion um, as of the uh, latest BIS data. Uh, and, and really, by the way, that is the one common theme about emerging markets. I mean, emerging market has been a misnomer for you know 20 years now. The only one thing in your markets like China, Malaysia, Turkey, or Argentina have in common is that they all borrow in dollars and they can't print it. Um, so when the dollar weakens, their you know servicing costs get easier. Uh, they can ease monetary policy at home. 
uh, and you see growth. When the dollar strengthens, as it has in much of the past five years, uh, you have balance of payment crisis all over the board. So it is indeed a dollar short call. So, Vincent, the trade deal between China and the U.S., it appears that we're making some progress on a phase one deal. We might even actually see something on paper one day. How critical is the trade deal, uh, even if it's just a phase one or a light trade deal? How important is that for the psyche of emerging market investors? I think psyche is the is the right word. Um, again, I mean, we, we've been, you know, very close to a trade deal for a year. Talks are going well. You get these tweets every day for, for a year now. Um, I have no insight as to what there is in that trade deal or, you know, even if the trade deal is going to be the same in the from perspective of China as it will be from the U.S. But all that matters, I think, is, is just no more insanity. Uh, as long as we don't have, you know, weird, uh, you know, out of the blue tweets, hey, I'm going to hike tariffs on, you know, this country or whatever next year, which I think is unlikely because just of the electoral cycle, just a promise of stability. I mean, we don't need to solve IT. There's probably no solution there anyway, or state-owned enterprise. Just no more insanity. And there's some relief. The other thing to, you know, think about is, it's not just about the trade deal. I mean, if you look at the, the auto cycle in China or, you know, um, even even cell phones, these things are bottoming on their own. So as long as we don't kind of, you know, run the market with, with unpredicted policies, things should get better. I love it. Our headline for this segment is going to be uh, emerging markets or global, global macro strategist says no more insanity. Just stop the insanity <laughs> and emerging markets can rally. I'm wondering, are there any developing market currencies that you do not like that you think are going to underperform uh, in 2020? Uh, sorry, d developing market currencies? Developing, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, I mean, you, you still have the... Um, the generally the, the the most vulnerable ones, right? I mean, are the ones that have the, you know a lot of high dollar debt, current account deficits. Uh, so, um, but again, so that would be the uh, the Argentine peso, uh, the South African rand, to some extent maybe the Indonesian rupiah. Uh, but all these currencies have been so massacred, uh, you know, in in the past two to three years that you got to wonder if, despite the vulnerabilities, they they could actually be kind of the 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 best on a on a on a bottoming uh, on a bottoming process. Um, the same is true, for example, with Chilean peso. You know, got down thirty percent. Uh, I'm sure people would, you know, that that's one of the ones that will come 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 top of mind. But again, there's so much damage that has been done that even the weak emerging market currencies may actually do well next year. Vincent Deliorard, thank you so much for joining us. Vincent is a global macro strategist for INTL FC Stone based in San Francisco. I like his note basically saying, all right, we were really wrong in 2019 <laughs> with our overweight call on emerging markets, but we're sticking with it. And here are the reasons why. That takes um, some gumption, certainly. Right now, we want to focus on everything else going on in Washington, D.C., other than impeachment, which uh, brings us to healthcare. Max Neeson joining us now in our interactive broker studios. And the reason why we wanted to have you here uh, is 
because we always love having you on. You cover biotech and pharma and healthcare uh, over at Bloomberg Opinion, but it's because there was a court decision having to do with Obamacare that seemed to be uh, potentially detrimental to the healthcare program. Can you talk a little bit about what the decision was? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a a long-running case that, that made its way to the Fifth Circuit. And what they essentially decided was that the individual mandate uh, which is, you know, from a prior court case, you know, this is a decade of uh, legal back and forth, um, was deemed a tax. Then Congress zeroed out the tax. So because it's zeroed out, it can no longer be seen as a tax. Therefore, it's once again unconstitutional. But they punted, essentially, on the more important part of the case because the individual mandate is zeroed out. It doesn't really matter that it's unconstitutional. Uh, what what matters is whether that means that the rest of the law or parts of the rest of the law have to go with it. And instead of making some kind of decision on that, they kicked it back down to the, the, the lower court, uh, a judge who already ruled that he thought the whole law was unconstitutional. They just thought he wasn't careful enough or didn't look at the details enough to make that decision, although he probably will end up making the same decision. He's a He's a pretty conservative guy. So what are next steps here? Because I'm just thinking about the election coming up and boy, it's a, once again, healthcare is going to be a, you know, a hot button issue for the candidates. How's the timing of this going to play into it, do you think? Yeah. So it, it mostly depends on what the Supreme Court decides to do. They could wait until they, we get a, a, another decision uh, from from that lower court judge, and then um, you know then it might be appealed up to them. I, I believe that Democrats are going to try and take it directly to the Supreme Court, um, you know, in the hope of a faster resolution and putting this front and center in the election because it is probably not a court case that at this point is is. Uh, of benefit to the Trump administration, even though it's his Justice Department that continues to push it, because we saw in in the the midterm elections uh, portions of the law that that could be struck down by this case, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, staying on your parents' insurance until 26, stuff like that could go with it, and that's become wildly popular. So if this lawsuit does strike the law down in its entirety, it would create a, a big mess for the election and the healthcare system at large. I'm wondering, we, we've been talking for years now about uncertainty around Obamacare. What's the practical implication of having this sort of uh, overhang of a cloud uh, on the healthcare program, given the fact that insurance companies and healthcare providers have to have, you know, two-year, three-year, four-year outlooks uh, for their financial plans? Yeah, I mean, it's created, uh, you know, there's been a whole series of messes. Um, you know, if you go back all the way to the, the early years of the law, uh, the fact that the Medicaid expansion wouldn't be universally implemented, uh, throwing out certain categories of subsidies for insurers all along, the, and then uh, losing the individual mandate all along, this has sort of made it harder to price plans, to, to profitably participate in the market. Um, and, and that's created a lot of disruption and, and made insurance um, on the individual market pretty unaffordable for people that don't qualify for for subsidies. The fact that they're income-linked subsidies, that's kept the market stable enough to survive. But, um, you know, enrollment is way down from what was initially uh, initially forecasted. And, and it you know, it's down again this year. It persists, but not in the form that the people who authored the law would have hoped. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go. It just seems like, as Lisa mentioned, you know, it's since Obamacare has been passed, it's been it seems like it's the opposition forces and now the Republicans over the last three years have been chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at the Affordable Care Act. Is there a sense of like how much is even left of the original uh, plan 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it is not what was originally envisioned. There are still, you know, more than 20 million people that still, that are covered for the first time that have insurance that might otherwise not because of the individual market and because of the Medicaid expansion and then a variety of other, you know, changes throughout the healthcare system. Still enormously impactful and, and beneficial, uh, you know, but at the same time, it's it's not what it might have been. Or on the other, you know, you might say it's not what it could be with a few tweaks to, to some some loopholes and errors that, that I'm sure the drafters would like to get back. Or if you, you know, you boost the subsidies a little bit, you could get that coverage number a lot higher and make that coverage a lot more useful. Uh, but that will take a very different Congress than the one we have right now. So just real quickly, Max, 20 million people covered that wouldn't be covered. What's the bad part of that? I mean, what's the opposition saying about that? It's just too expensive? Um, well, the, the argument is that by forcing insurance to cover, you know, make women pay, make insurers have, have give the same price yep. to women as men, um, that's and basically cuts at freedom okay. and kills the market. Okay. All right. All I, right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm articulating it from a certain angle because I think the arguments are bad. Right. <laughs> but, but more or less, it's, you okay. know, they, they've made the market um, less functional yep. by adding these regulations. Uh, yeah, yeah. Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Every time you walk in here, I think I'm going to get smarter, but I just it just reminds me, this healthcare thing is brutally complex. Uh, Max, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate it. It's something that you constantly have to pay attention to because it is constantly changing. Well, we are right smack in the middle of the holiday shopping season to get an update on what's going on out there in the world of re retail. We welcome back our good friend Seema Shah. She is Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel, formerly of Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Seema, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks we always having love me. having you talking retail. Yeah. How is the holiday selling season going? It seems like the consumer is in pretty good shape, so are retail sales kind of following suit? No, they're not. So I don't know if you saw October, uh, November retail sales missed by 30 basis points. There was even though that included Thanksgiving, Black Friday and super, what small business Saturday and they were still missed. I know a lot of holidays very compressed this year. Yeah. It's only like 26 days versus 32 last year. So we're, it's Christmas is literally in five, six days from now. And with the fact that you had Prime Day in the summer and you basically have promotions all year round, there's a lot less urgency. So you know, and there's still that shift to online. So the consumer is still spending where they want to, but they want a deal. And, you know, they, they it's a little cramped, though, for them in terms of spending. One yeah. thing that's hard to gauge, uh, given the dynamic right now in retail, is mm -hmm. how much of the weakness that we're seeing in select retailers mm -hmm. is their lack of adapting to the modern right. era. And right. how much is due to uh, a consumer that just really isn't capable or willing to spend the way that they used to. So do right. you have a sense of what it is? Well, I think part of a lot of it from sort of the, some of the players, it is that, that they were slow to change. You know, they sort of got taken over by mass who expanded to that category. So you see the department stores, you see someone like a Bed Bath. But now you see like for Bed Bath, for example, they have a new CEO. He's basically cleaned house. He's going to add a new management team. He's known. He came from Target from adding private label and omni-channel. So I think if you see somebody doing that or you see like the return of a retailer like Best Buy, it's possible. But if you're too slow and you don't do it, that's when you miss the opportunity. So I think a lot of it is that. 
But I also think that people just really want to deal. And when you have things like tariffs, even if there's the threat of tariffs or rising costs or wages, that puts pressure on the retailer because people are like, I'm not going to buy it till I get 50% off. So Seema, I know the folks at Credit Intel, you guys look at kind of the financial health, the credit yes. health across the uh, retail ecosystem. We know the retailers, particularly some of them, I guess department stores continue to struggle. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? What are you kind of telling your clients? Um, it really depends on a sector by sector basis. We just mentioned Best Buy doing very, very well had a great quarter, probably are gonna have a good holiday. But then you also have somebody like an L Brands who Victoria's Secrets is really struggling. They're almost all in the mall. They're losing share to Aerie. So how do they revive that business without losing the momentum they have in Bath and Body Works? So it's definitely uh, a hit or miss or definitely, but you know, like home furnishings, for example, at home is someone I'd keep an eye out from a risk perspective, right? They've slowed their store growth. They have to suddenly invest in omni-channel, so I don't see any margin improvement in the near future. So these are things that we sort of look at and see like what's the prospect for them in terms of cash flow. And given know? the fact that you are focused on the debt side, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps more than just EPS or, or yes. other uh, sort of top line uh, growth areas, I'm wondering what do you think the prospects are of an ongoing retail apocalypse or ongoing kind of washout that we've seen? I mean, are we going to continue right. to see that or is this pretty much? In terms of store closures, I don't know that you'll see it as much as you do, but it'll continue to probably be people optimizing their fleets as leases come up or move to better locations or trying to figure out how they can improve the productivity of the box because 85% of retail is still in the store. It's still important, but you have to make it appealing. It has to be a nice experience. And if you want to do things like buy online, pick up in store, which helps the retailer's margin and people like that service, you have to be prepared and have the associates trained to do so. If you go in there and nobody knows what you're talking about, you're not going to do it again. So these are things that I think people have to do. So Seema, I think in past conversations, we've talked about the number of stores in America and how America yes. is still overstored. What are you guys saying to your clients now, or what are you hearing from some of your clients about how much more do we have to go in terms of kind of reducing the footprint of Retail America? Um, I think some of the legacy retailers that were closing stores, the Sears of the world, JCPenney had closed Some of those locations were not optimal as people changed and habits changed. But I think a lot of retail, it's just a matter of some people overexpanded, but that box might still be good for, a, let's say, a smaller, maybe non-public retailer. So. I think, you know, there's still lots of room for stores. It just has to be in the right location. And part of our analysis to show like how close you are to your competitors, is it going to be worth your while to open a store here? And I think a lot of it was just opening stores without really thinking about it strategically. So everyone wants a deal. So why don't yes. these stores just mark things up twice as much and then say it's going to be 60% off? In order for all of them to do that, I guess they would have to collude, which is illegal. But <laughs> no, but, but, but I mean, I'm, I'm, in all seriousness, uh, you know, are, are, are stores trying to get away from sort of training uh, consumers? Some brands are. Yeah, as, you, as many as possible, they are. They're trying to pull back, but the immediate effect is that you see a negative impact with on Gap, yourself. for example. Gap, for example, but and that's also the ones that are in the middle tier. RH completely pulled back, but they're high end luxury, so they can pass through the price and you really like, uh, it doesn't really matter. But for the middle tier, when you're, and if you don't have a unique product and you can do like for like comparison, then it's very hard to do that. And that's where you see the problem. So Sam, I'm just looking at uh, the, one of the recent reports from your firm and you know, looking at the Thanksgiving period, Black Friday, mm -hmm. online sales, some people are putting up some good numbers. It's not just Amazon. I mean, Walmart up 50%, oh, yes. Nordstrom up 60%. So yes. is it, 
can we say that the traditional retailers have finally figured out how to compete against Amazon? The larger ones have. And I think that the mass is the, probably the best example. Uh, even I mean, a specialty maybe Best Buy, Williams-Sonoma is over 50%. But they have really figured out how to appeal to the customer wherever they want to shop, make it easy for them to fulfill their goods you know, in the store, on the way home, we'll sell, you know, whatever you want to do, they make it as easy as possible, but they also have the scale to do that. And a lot of the smaller retailers don't, you have a lot of, a lot of capital to invest in this logistics. And so I think there are ways to do it and there are ways to be competitive, but you really have to step up that investment. In have you future. finished your holiday shopping? I, I have, for the yeah, most part. So that, yeah, no, I, 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 mean, I imagine that most people probably who are organized like I know you are. I know personally just how organized you might be. We still have six days. What's the problem? <laughs> that, 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 well, that, that's yes. when you want to buy that's online, okay. pick up in store, or same day delivery. You know, these are all things that they're doing to make the consumer, hey, like you have basically up until Christmas Eve. Right, except and that you can get it. Yeah, except that you're you're organized enough to do that. Seema Shah, thank you so much <laughs> thank for being you. here. Thank you. It was nice, nice to be to back. Seema Shah is Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel, uh, based in New York, talking about the retail landscape. It's kind of an interesting shift that we've seen going on. People talk about the retail apocalypse, but it's more like the retail kind of, uh, I don't know, morphologist or something. Yeah, I mean, it's just changing. I mean, it's a, what, what, uh, what has talked about Somebody is, uh, you know, the omni, words, the omni channel you know, experience. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you can get that right, like some of the big mass merchants, mass merchants, then you can compete. But if you're not, maybe some of these smaller companies who can't invest uh, in the technology needed, that could be the big challenge. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.